Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of uh, Tennis with an Accent. Uh, we haven't spoken much about Wimbledon, it's in full flow actually. It's uh, reaching its climax. Uh, I have Anand here joining me. Hey everyone. So yeah, we'll just you know do uh, an uh, examination of what we thought, you know, how this thing started 10 days ago and if you know uh, our projections, uh, even if we did not make one on this forum, uh, how it's holding up. And some other interesting topics, of course, because tennis is never short of uh, some sort of a conflict. And uh, Wimbledon is one place that always rises to the challenge and manages to, how do you say, polarize a discussion. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. There's, uh, I think there's several topics all the way from sexism to uh, how the courts are playing. So uh, let's get started, Sakit. All right. So actually, you know, Wimbledon being sexist, that's the easiest segue we can have. And uh, I'll be the first one, and I'm sure there won't be much disagreement. If there is, please speak out. I think it's, uh, you know, they have to somehow come around and do 11 a.m. or 11.30 start like the outer courts and even all other majors because there's no reason for the women to play just seven matches in the first seven days of this tournament. Uh, if Serena Williams is playing uh, this tournament, Sharapova was playing, some of the likes of Venus Williams and uh, Halep, some of these girls wouldn't have even seen center court till pretty much... Uh, when they had reached semi-final, and there's something seriously wrong in that scheduling. You know, Saqib, I was thinking about this, and why is it such a big issue this year when the scheduling they've been following for the last, I mean, since since, since I know, really, for the, at least for the last decade, they have been having a similar scheduling. And I've been wondering why it is this year that they, they're starting to actually make a big fuss about this whole thing. And I think part of this is because, um, at least in my mind, um, the lack of that star power on the women's side means that some of who we think are the top players are not even playing in court one or court two. They're actually way out. Um, Ostapenko was playing on court 12 against Vitalina. And I think that kind of stuff has brought this to, uh, to some kind of focus. But this has been an issue that's been going on for, uh, for years. No, I, I agree, but I think there were always murmurs or there were always discussions you know, in certain pockets, and you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, just like, again, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, Serena Williams in the draw, Contas in the draw. There's already a dilemma if you're going to just put one and they're in the same half. Then forget about five-time champion Venus Williams, who may very well end up winning this thing. And that's where I don't really make a big deal out of it, but I mean, a five-time champion should get a look at the center court a few times, and she's playing top-notch tennis. Uh, at least for center court, they have uh, a roof, and if the match goes late, they can use the lighting and the roof. So this, this thing has to, the program has to start 11.30 like outer courts. At least that way they can put one more women's match. And, you know, we, and we, we wouldn't be left complaining about the disparity uh, because you're not moving Murray out of there. And, of course, uh, there's a lot of, you know, favoritism talk that you're not moving Federer out of there. So I, I guess that's one way to dodge that bullet. And then, of course, there's a whole different discussion with the likes of Nadal being unhappy and now Djokovic episode. Uh, other people want to have a look at the center court. So, I don't know. How, how do you feel? Uh, uh, yeah, that let, segment. Me, let me first uh, say, say that I don't think Wimbledon is more sexist this year than the years before. So, maybe that, that's what I'm trying to clarify. So, it is true that, you know, some of these women have to be uh, playing on center court and court one. I, I think it's grossly unfair the way it is right now. Um, but I think Wimbledon has always been, <laughs> I think, slow on the uptake. And when you compare it to the other slams, um, when you look at prize money, for instance, it was only in 2007 that they started offering, I think, 
equal prize money to both men and women. Uh, and it was the last slam to come on board. And I think this is this is probably about time that people started, you know, raising awareness to how unfair it has been for women in scheduling. Um, Eleven thirty start or not, I still think there needs to be more women's matches being played on on these showcase courts. Uh, one of the things I'll say is, if you look at um, these players, they're all up and coming. There's a lot of parity in the draw, and I think it it really behooves the tournament to start to bring these players into the center court so that the fans get to know them. Um, nobody knows uh, Svetolina or Ostapenko. The, you know, the, the layman uh, tennis fan is not really following these people at the moment because they're not showing up on TV. And I, I really feel like Wimbledon owes, uh, owes the women's store, um, uh, you know, a lot more than what they're showing right now. Let's uh, go back to the Djokovic situation. What happened yesterday was kind of unfortunate. Uh, I don't know if Wimbledon learns something, but then there is the scheduling uh, equality topic that was floating around. That uh, There were rumors, even I think Wertheim tweeted, that Murray might be playing at court one. But then everything, you know, normal service resumed. It's Murray and Federer back on center, and uh, the other two quarterfinals are on court one. Yeah, I mean, let's think about that one. So I have a slightly different view on, on the Djokovic um, situation. So, if you had any other uh, circumstance, not not a really long nadal Muller match, um, say it was raining, for instance, I don't think uh, they would have moved the Djokovic match uh, to center court. Um, I think really what precipitated this was the fact that the Nadal match went on for more than four hours and they had to make a call on whether they had to move this match to center court. Um, I don't feel like there's any situation where Wimbledon would have come out looking good. Because had they moved this to center court, that would have created a lot of confusion among fans. Maybe even... Yeah, but I, I think you've attended, I mean, uh, you know, US Open. There's, there's, a, there's a PA system, you know, you can make these announcements. Uh, now, the challenge is, uh, do you shortchange court one people who were promised three matches and they're going to get only two matches? Because center court, you can only reward people who probably have moved to Henman Hill and say, hey, guys, come back. Federer's match just ended, so we give you 45 minutes, file in there, and, you know, Djokovic match will start at 8 p.m. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think that was the best logical solution. Because but, to but they're not shortchanging anyone because if the match did not happen anyway, those Fort one fans wouldn't have seen it, right? No, but it is more, uh, it's, a, it's a fairness uh, issue here for players. For Djokovic now, uh, or, you know, he won. Now he has to play two days in a row. But that would have happened, say, if it rained, right? I mean, I, I'm just saying, hypothetically. If, if it rained, then it, it could have impacted some other, other courts as well. Uh, Granted, like Nadal match was the longest match, and others were done. Uh, you know, uh, Raonic and Federer, everybody had safely seen their match through. Uh, but but the point here is, I think some logic could have prevailed because that's the only court that has lights, and that's yeah. the only court that has roof. The, so the second, the second thought in my mind, Sakib, is that the, I don't know if there was enough time to have a full, complete men's best of five match even on center court uh, they probably would not have played it all the way to the finish unless they did something like the US Open which you know they, they just go on till 2 or 3 a.m. No, I think Wimbledon has a 11 p.m. curfew and I think these guys again now it's you I know, mean, you can... you know Djokovic played Manorino and most likely it would have been a straight sets kind of thing but we can't make the assumption and my point is I think they had a few factors to consider I'm giving Wimbledon a pass here on the women's scheduling thing, on the other hand, I'm, I'm pretty firm that uh, they need to change their um, thinking on it. 
Okay, and uh, the other current issue is now some people are, you know, there's a clear federal bias. A lot of fans in, try to insinuate and, you know, uh, the establishment wants him on these courts. But, I mean, he's clearly a man in demand and he's a great record at Wimbledon. Uh, and now tomorrow he's playing Milos Raonic, which is probably the marquee matchup of the day. So I'm fine. They put Federer back there. Uh, they were not going to move Murray, but I think in hindsight, they could have easily put Federer Lajovic, the second round encounter on court one, and Novak could have played. So there was there, there could have been some precedence that, okay, these guys, uh, if not Murray, at least Federer played on court one. I, I think it's economic speaking here, right? Um, so it, I think they had a call to make. I am okay with a tournament uh, organizer making these kinds of decisions because, let's face it, at the end of the day, this is... Um, you know, they're running a business. They, they are trying to make money off this thing. And and the fans want to watch uh, players like Federer come out on center court. Let me ask you this question. Good thing it's a business decision. I, I agree. You are like probably the more business, you know, mind here because, you know, of your background. So most money comes through TV, right? So and everywhere in the world, I think, court one is also live. So if you are even putting Federer there, I mean, how does a money arrangement work? You, you'll still get the money's worth or you have to put him on center in I, the early round? No, I, I think court one is a good alternative, but I think the prestige that comes with playing on center court. So if, if, if we truly say that court one and center court are almost similar, all things being equal, then you put the more popular player on center court. Um, I think it's the prestige with Federer. I mean, you have a seven-time champion. I, I just feel that there's, there's way too much at stake for, for these guys to put him on and out of court. Really, seven-time champion. I mean, again, I'm a you know big Roger Federer fan. Don't have to yell that out again and again. But so is Venus Williams, a five-time champion. So that's what I'm saying. Uh, the seven-time champion, it, it's good. I, I understand the business angle, and but I still don't know who's triggering this demand when Center Court can only have three matches. It's not like U.S. Open; you have five matches, three-day matches and two night sessions. Same in Australia, and I think Roland Garros. I think they do a. We we don't hear this problem there that often, even mm-hmm. though. Uh, Monfils and Songa in the past have played on Chatrier and uh, I think all the big four have taken their turn to go on Suzanne Longland quite regularly mm-hmm. but this is mostly a topic of concern at Wimbledon and a lot of people uh, are pretty outraged uh, by the proceedings. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I could see both point of, points of view but where, I guess where I'm at is I don't think they would be wrong in, in scheduling it the way they did. Uh, no, I don't think they're wrong tomorrow. They have to put Federer around it there. Murray uh, and... Uh, Who's he playing? Query. That, that's that's kind of up in the air. Could they have put Djokovic? But then I don't know. Like, what kind of rationale is there? Or are, you know, it's an establishment decision that you know they're not going to succumb to Novak's press conference. Uh, I mean, we are total outsiders. We only gather this information by reading. Yeah, uh, good point. I mean, Venus Williams absolutely should be, uh, I think, accorded the same kind of respect that Roger is getting. Um, she's no less a champion, at least at this tournament, um, and. For me, uh, I would be shocked if they, they put Venus outside, uh, outside center court. Okay, fair enough. So, uh, we can uh, move ahead. Uh, so, how do you see this tournament shaping up? Uh, has your, whatever picks you have made, uh, you, you think they're still holding form or you think there's a change in guard, let's like, say, not changing guard, but see, you can see Novak, you know, run through the field again or... Is that yeah, possible? I mean, let's, let's talk about this, Akib. You and I wrote a couple of articles on our uh, website. Um, so I wrote about snakes in the grass. So I talked about the dark horses, and you actually spoke about the favorites. 
Uh, I feel pretty good about my, you know, the dark horses I picked. I mean, by nature, it's hard to pick a dark horse and, and see them go all the way through. But um, I have a 50% record with the dark horses, and I'll take credit for that. So I picked Muller, actually, to do really well in this tournament. And uh, look what he's done. I mean, uh, probably played the match of the tournament um, in beating Nadal. And then Sam Query was the other guy I picked. Um, who is also doing very well, played another uh, amazing match against uh, Kevin Anderson. Um, and who knows, he may have a shot uh, in the quarterfinals as well. Uh, so yeah, those are good picks. When you picked Query, I, I was not sure. I thought you should have picked Lopez or uh, someone else instead. But yeah, good yeah. on you. So here's the one that where I failed. It was a miserable fail. It was um, uh, Luca Pui, who I actually thought would... This is this the draw really opened up for him, um, and I actually thought he would go all the way to the final. And boy, I have, have I been burned by that guy because um, he really looked like he was on the verge of a breakthrough. He's made a couple of quarterfinals, uh, won a grass court warm up coming into this tournament, looked really good. Um, but he has this strange knack of. Starting slow, I mean, he really struggles in rounds uh, one and two. He plays these long five-setters, not unlike, um, you know, Kei Nishikori, um, you know, and, in the past. And uh, so he was a pick that I actually thought I would make to the final, and uh, he, it did not happen. The rest of the draw, it played out more or less the way I expected it to. I'm a little surprised that Rafa lost the way he was playing. Um, but now, um, I have to say... I mean, it really is coming down to the match between uh, Roger and Djokovic in the in the semifinals, and I honestly cannot pick between between the two. Djokovic has the edge in terms of the mental, uh, uh, you know, matchup they've had over the last couple of years. Djokovic has kind of beaten Federer in all the critical matches, but who can argue against the level of play that Roger is showing right now? Yeah, I think few few things have changed uh, since they last played here. Uh, I think Federer you know, definitely has a major in the bag, which wasn't the case in the longest of you know time. So he's pretty confident. Uh, the whole clarity in his gameplay through Australia uh, into Miami. Uh, so he's definitely playing at a uh, at a higher level. I mean, you cannot imagine you know how Federer's level can even get higher. And uh, of course, the Djokovic you know story is uh, known to all. Like how he struggled to find the mojo and the tennis, and it's been many questions for the last twelve months. So finally. Uh, if the two do face off, they still have you know unfinished business. Both have to actually get there. Uh, I, I still think uh, Federer is going to get this done. So, so let me say this uh, on on the level that we have seen. Yes, I think Roger is playing the better tennis. But what we've seen in the past between these two is that Roger is unable to produce that level when he's playing against Djokovic. Uh, so we saw the year before uh, the way. Roger destroyed uh, Wawrinka or he beat Andy Murray. And then he struggled against Djokovic. I mean, not that he struggled, but Djokovic put him in positions where he was not able to put, uh, play his best tennis. And that, yeah. that's what I think may happen. Yeah, but there are like, certain factors. Is Djokovic mentally there to, to grind it out like, you know, or play at that level when he was making these, you know, superhuman gets like he was a human backboard and, and Federer had to play for the Lions, take more risks. So... I mean, there's no secret. If Djokovic is playing at that level, Roger's going to go for more. And then, of course, the dynamic changes as it did from uh, 2014 to that Australian Open match in 2016. But now, I think uh, it's both are kind of not in similar positions if you compare. 
those three matches at Wimbledon and US Open. So uh, again, I'm yeah, taking, I think uh, like he hasn't that. played. He hasn't forgotten how to win matches. But uh, if the if the two were to face off on Friday, I still think Federer is is going to be the favorite in my books. Like you but said, I'm, there's unfinished business, Akib. Uh, so when I think back to the Australian Open final, there was unfinished business there. Federer took care of it. Um, came back and won that match. It was a heck of a match. Um, same situation for me right now with the Wimbledon semifinals. Until I think Roger starts to show that he can dominate um, Djokovic. So you're not giving any chance to Raonic and Burdick for producing any upset. I I, I have the, the the feel I have for the Federer Raonic matches. It is a bit of a grudge match for Roger. He he lost last year when he was not at a hundred percent. We know this. Uh, not only did he lose at not being at a hundred percent, I think um, he actually he had a couple of sloppy, I would say, sloppy sets uh, that he played. Even even at that eighty percent, you know, he had that fall. If you remember, he fell at uh, trying to volley. He's got some unpleasant moments that he wants to take care of, and I think the way he's playing right now, Ravanic just doesn't have, I think, uh, the goods to match this level of Roger. Um, so this is going to be a grudge match. Reminds me of so many others in the past that we've seen. Similarly, Becker versus Steak, uh, if you remember Sakib from the years before. Um, I, I think this is one of those matches where Federer just comes back and uh, and, and wins. And I, I I wouldn't be surprised if he won in straight straight sets. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I I think likewise, uh, grudge or no grudge, I think Roger's coming in looking sharper, well rested. I mean, the plan is kind of working, taking you know the extended break. So. And I still think he has another gear that, you know, he'll go in starting tomorrow. Uh, we saw a bit of the, a, a glimpse against Dimitrov, but I think uh, against Milos Raonic, he knows, like, the stakes are slightly higher because Milos can serve you off the court. And he did that uh, last year after the fourth set when Federer uh, was 4-11, and, you know, lost it uh, 12th game to force a tie-break. No, actually, give the set, not even a tie-break. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, I still think in my books, Roger is the favorite to run to the finals. And uh, I've been talking to some of the friends, and I kind of agree. Marin Cilic, uh, I know you call him a fluke story, uh, but I think uh, matchup-wise, if he's firing, he may be the most dangerous in current form. Of course, if Novak rediscovers that, then it's a whole different conversation. But I don't think you discover that kind of level overnight. So I think uh, Marin Cilic could be the most tough opponent for Roger in current form, but then I don't see Chilich beating Andy Murray. Well, that's the key here. I mean, for Chilich, so if you look at it purely from Chilich's perspective, he probably would want to meet Roger Federer in the final. And I know it, it sounds kind of surprising, but he, uh, Djokovic owns Chilich. Um, Andy Murray, two matches up pretty well with him. Um, and I, I think Chilich would want to play Federer. But I still would maintain this. I think Chilich, as well as he's playing now, he, he got, I mean, he didn't get lucky. But he had a hot streak at the U.S. Open and, you know, lightning strikes only once in my book. Uh, it's not happening here. And now we're writing off uh, James Miller uh, against Pillage, even though he had a day in between to recover. And Miller did beat Pillage, I believe, in uh, uh, Andras this year. Yeah, I mean, Muller, if he's playing at his best, uh, I can uh, I can definitely see him give it's a lot of trouble because um, right, Muller, one of the things that his game has improved significantly is his serve. Um, and I, I think, I don't know if Muller, I don't know if Chilich, um, you know, can dominate Muller. 
but if Muller is not at 100%, we can write that one off. Uh, Chilich is going to make the semis. Uh, how about the women's now? Uh, you're seeing uh, Venus Williams winning a record six, uh, you know, Wimbledon. Uh, so, what, what a story, Saket. For me, this is the story of the tournament going on right now, Venus Williams. Um, not Nothing on the men's side, uh, which is why I'm a little pissed with uh, the scheduling that's happening um, right now. Um, Venus Williams, if you just think about, one, the context, um, the fact that she's 37 years old, uh, she's come back from what I would say is a serious illness, um, uh, the Sjogren's uh, syndrome that she had. Um, came back and she actually made the Australian Open finals, lost to the, in my mind, lost to the second greatest women's player of all time. And, um, and now she's, she's on, on the way to making a final here at Wimbledon where she's won five times. All of this plus... Think about what happened a month ago. Uh, on June 9th, she had a car accident, which uh, unfortunately killed uh, uh, an older gentleman. And she's somehow gotten a lot of media uh, focused on, on that situation, which can be emotionally draining for anyone, uh, let alone a celebrity. And she's put all of that aside, and she's played some incredible tennis to beat um, you know, to beat the last uh, Grand Slam champion in uh, Yelena Ostapenko, beat back a whole bunch of 19 and 20 year olds, very promising, hard hitting players, and and get to the semifinals. What a story, Saket. I mean, I, I cannot think of a parallel on the men's side that, that even comes close to matching what, what's happening with Venus Winger. But in my mind, uh, the match against uh, Conta, that's kind of the final before the final. It is. I mean, think back to um, the last time Venus has been to two, two Grand Slam finals. Uh, you won't believe this, but it was 2003 is the last time she made two Grand Slam finals in a year. Um, I'm not saying she's playing at that level, but this is someone who's been there time and again. And um, the other thing about Venus, which is a very uh, uh, you know funny stat, I was looking her up on uh, just on Wikipedia, is... She very rarely loses in semifinals. When she's playing well, she makes that final. And um, uh, this could be one of those times where I know Conta is playing extremely well. She's a very powerful player. She's got the crowd behind her. But let's not underestimate people in the audience who will be rooting for Venus. She, Conta may not quite have the level of support that, that she's been having. Even though she's the local girl, she's playing a legend. Um, and Venus. No, but I'll, I'll disagree there. I think only, again, uh, not to question Venus, Serena, or Djokovic or Nadal. I think uh, these partisan crowds. I think only Federer has been able to break the gridlock of the home home, home support. I, I I think the the crowd there, even though as international it is, there'll be a lot of you know people from Great Britain. I think they'll be fully behind Joe Conta. That's that's how I see that match. They'll respect Venus Williams. They won't boo her. They'll clap for her. But uh, I don't think, uh, I think, don't be mistaken, if it's close, it's all Conta. If as far as close, I, I, you could see that. But uh, I, I also see Venus coming out strong. And this is, remember, Conta's first semifinal in a slam. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see. I mean, Conta definitely has the ability. Uh, we saw her actually play a very strong match against Serena, the Australian Open, even though she lost in straight sets. Um, the quality of tennis was outstanding. And uh, she might come out here pretty strong. But the other factor for me is that Conta has just been playing many long three-set matches. 
um, all of which have been, I think, emotionally draining for her. And so uh, let's see how she uh, I mean, comes. But I'm 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 in Venus's camp, and um, I, I think she's going to be winning this whole tournament. Uh, but again, just let's mention, let's not forget to mention the emotional drain, uh, the British media, and you know. Uh, the tabloid uh, part of that media brings the expectation that Henman went through and then Murray's still dealing with it. Uh, I think those two weeks at Wimbledon, uh, what Murray goes through is pretty close to what, you know, Tendulkar used to go in cricket when uh, a billion people are rooting for you and the pressure is there every time you go. So that's the pressure I think Joe Conta will be facing. It's uh, uncharted waters. I mean, new, a whole new experience. Expectation is there. Serena Williams not in the draw. So the pressure is don't screw this one up. You can win the whole thing. It's going to be pretty fascinating, but I, I, what I saw today against Halep, I think uh, Joe Kanta has a game. Uh, but of course, Venus Williams is a step up uh, and playing Simona Halep on grass. So uh, I am with you that Venus is a formidable four, but I, I, I see Joe Kanta sneaking this one out and uh, playing the final on Saturday. Yeah, and let's talk about the other semi because uh, I think Muguruza is the other player who's looking very dangerous. He played an outstanding match against Kerber. Unfortunately, not in center court again. Um, but he looks ready to win another slam. Um, so, while we're talking about Venus and Conta, it might be Magruda who's actually coming out and uh, stealing the slam. Yeah, she's definitely a person who's kind of recharged after that uh, episode with the Paris crowd, with, uh, fully behind uh, Kiki Mladanovic, and uh, she kind of broke down in the, in the presser. And uh, she's been kind of very positive since and uh, has been on a roll. Maybe just, you know, a point to prove to herself that she can compete at this elite level again. And yeah, she she, she could be playing the Wimbledon final. Yeah, because the, uh, the girl she's playing, Barakova, is, is a veteran on the tour who I think will... I would be very surprised if she beat Mogoroda and made the finals. But this is the beauty of women's tennis right now is it, it's throwing up these... Unusual players, and you know, at the deep end, and um, you know, we saw some incredible results happen just in the last uh, couple of years. Um, so we cannot p- put it past anyone, any of these four winning. This is why I feel very safe uh, when I pick uh, Venus Williams because he knows how to do it. And uh, just going back to Rai Berikova, uh, who earlier took out Coco Vandeweghe, who I think it's fair to say is the Jack Sock of uh, WTA. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, she one day she looks like a world beater and then, you know, a lot of time it's just like, there's no plan B. What, what, a, th- what a wasted chance for her because, um, again, the, the player she's, she would have struggled against would have been somebody like a Serena Williams. Her side of the draw opened up. He definitely w- would have uh, competed well against a player like Muguruza, who was also a very offensive kind of player. Um, yeah, but... I think I watched, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the match. I watched uh, the conclusion of the Coco Vandeweghe and Ryberkova match. And uh, Coco was just hitting, uh, I think it was a matchup issue. She just couldn't dictate, couldn't find her weapons to fire. Her, her serve wasn't working. So and yeah. it was a pretty convincing loss. It was kind of a... Yeah, it was. And, and, and she, by the way, lost to Ryberkova also in the first round of the French Open. Uh, so it's not, it's it, not a surprise then. <laughs> it's not a surprise, but we know Coco has the game. I mean, that that serve is one of the best in the women's tour. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that she cannot bring it all together. Um, when you know, when and I think that, I think you made a great analogy with with Jack Sock because he's also an equally frustrating player to watch sometimes. 
So are you going to call it? I mean, uh, is Venus Williams, as you said, all the way? or Venus Williams all the way. Uh, I'll put jo- Djokovic as the, the mild favorite on the men's side. Um, but wow. I think the winner is coming out of uh, the match between Djokovic and, uh, and Roger Federer. Uh, let's hope that match happens. Yeah, it, it's, it's a match that even I think Federer is looking forward to. I think uh, we will have a, a Federer-Murray final like 2012. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my call. But, of course, uh, you cannot rule any of these guys out. Uh, it just takes three sets of lights out tennis. Yeah, as Djokovic pointed out, um, he's playing a guy who he owns, but the same guy beat him in the 2010 semifinals. Uh, so right. Things can happen. Okay, so before we segue into the last topic of uh, the podcast, uh, I was hoping you would, you know, give me credit, but I'll just ask for credit online now on this podcast. I mean, come on, you made fun of me when I picked Ernest Gulbis beating Del Potro. And not only he beat him, he, he, we know how it went, straight set. So, I, I mean. I did say that he would send his ass back to a spy in, uh, a spy in Latvia. It did not happen. I will give you credit, Sakib. Um Thank you. Um, and and I I, there are no excuses I think he outplayed Del Porto in that match he out hit him Del Porto did not have a plan B which is actually very uh, surprising Um, and uh, and Gulbis honestly the way he started against Djokovic I I thought he might even pull off a set there Uh, I mean that's that's the brilliance of Gulbis but I think he's uh, really lacking match play the guy has been uh, consistently injured since you know, he lost to Wimbledon uh, first round uh, to Jack Sock last year. So, yeah, it's good to see him back on the court. He's ranking, I think, will be 300-something after this week. Hopefully, you know, they are generous enough to let him in some challenges where he can bag some points and maybe start playing main draw soon because when he's on, I mean, this guy, again, I know, uh, he's very unapologetic unapolog- in his tennis. He doesn't really care if it's Federer or Djokovic across the... And that's the kind of... I think mindset sometimes the Nishikori's and Raonic's lack, I think, the killer instinct that Gulbis has. But then Gulbis can lose to anyone. So there's always a flip side. I would agree with that. Um, I just think, I mean, in some ways it's sad. Uh, I think of him as a lost talent. Uh, obviously, he, he was born within 30 days of Djokovic and look at how different their careers are. Same day as your man Andy Roddick. <laughs> they share a birthday. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and, and I mean, if you just compare him to Djokovic, uh, just look at how their careers have shaped out. Uh, I mean, it's very unfair. Djokovic is like, once this is all settled, I mean, he probably has a date with history. He's already mentioned with the likes of Federer, Sampras, Lever, Nadal. So Djokovic is a different breed. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, 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 all I'm saying is when, when they were 19 or 20, I don't think you would have split them apart in talent. Um, I think one guy showed the willpower and obviously the work ethic to make it. The other guy probably took it easy. Um, that, that's all I'm saying. Look, I mean, uh, the, maybe we can do a separate podcast on Gulbis because I've followed his career a little closely and I think sometimes, uh, yeah, he comes from a wealthy background, but a lot of time it's unfair to just say he lacks the fire. Of course, he lacks the fire of a Djokovic or a Safin or anyone who had to leave home and go live. But at the same time, he's a son of a, you know, a very rich man coming from a very wealthy family and you still have to work. Talent alone won't get you to top 10 in tennis. You have to work hard. Gulbis doesn't have to be doing it unless he really wants it. So honestly, a lot of, I know you're not insulting him, but I feel a lot of time the narrative around Gulbis is that, you know, he's a jerk or he's richy rich of tennis. But I, I think the guy deserves some more respect because he's 6-0 in finals. He's beaten a lot of top players. On his day, he can hang with anyone. 
even if his, his losses against Nadal are pretty close, when Nadal was playing some of his best tennis in Rome. And he beat Roger in a slam. What's that? And he beat Roger Federer in a slam. Hi. So I think that's 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 the thing. I mean, yeah, Gulbis is no Safin, but I mean, Gulbis is Gulbis, and when he's on, he's good for tennis. Uh, press room is a better place. He's Mr. Personality, but I think his game is really dangerous. He doesn't make excuses. You put him on one or eighteen, he, he'll he'll actually play better on one. He'll lose to someone you know serving fourteen double faults on the outer court, and I think he knows, and his fans know that's a challenge, consistency. But it looks like uh, I've been following him closely and uh, his trainer, and they've been. This, did, did this campaign on Twitter like making Ernest Gulbis great again and so Gulbis has spent some time getting fit hopefully uh, we see more of him yeah I hope so too and I think this this Wimbledon pretty much encapsulated his career I mean where he's capable of uh, hanging with the best and even beating them and he's equally capable of uh, self-destructing and I thought he actually played a bad match against Djokovic uh, so, so I, I think we've seen all all the all the different versions of Gulbis, and uh, like you, I'm as a tennis fan, I would I would love for this guy to succeed. But uh, I think uh, Jelena Ostapenka's uh, success is going to rub off because she's someone who looked up to him, and they're both from Latvia, and she was in his box when he beat the semis at Roland Garros in 2014. So even you know Gulbis, he may not admit, but I think this kind of success story is good. His time's running out. He still thinks he's, you know, he said in an interview, typical Gulbis style, in his mind, he's still a top 10 player, but the body doesn't agree. <laughs> so, again, you know, 589, and he's thinking he's top 10. So, that's Gulbis. It's funny that now the 30-year-old has to look up to the 20-year-old, the and we know Ostapenko is going to win many slams. He's just got that X factor with her. Um, hold on, Gulbis is 28, so 30 can wait. So. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so the segue here is about your favorite player and uh, the man who Gulbis shares a birthday with, Andy Roddick. There was an interesting tweet yesterday when uh, Gilles Muller pulled off the upset of Rafael Nadal. I think Brooklyn Decker, you know, she's Andy Roddick's spouse, and she tweeted something along the lines, we can interpret as it may, and she said, if Muller's making quarters, and then basically, you know, she didn't say much after that. But, uh, of course, everybody thought this is, she's saying Roddick should be back. Uh, I want you to take this first, and then I'll give my two cents of uh, if. Wh- how do you take that tweet? And I know it's fair; she can think that. But uh, who am I? Who am I to argue against Brooklyn? Uh, Brooklyn Decker. Um, so I, I absolutely think that uh, I think she she's making a very fair point. Um, Jules Muller, as good as he's been in this tournament, as much as as he's improved. Um, his peak level, even at this age, I think if Andy Roddick trained, his peak level would be, in my mind, below Andy Roddick's level. Having said that, that's the hypothetical. Could Andy Roddick have trained to reach this level? I think not. I mean, the guy was beat when he was retiring. He um, he was physically breaking down. He had, um, you know, he, he just, he admitted himself that he could not keep it going. Um, his body was breaking down. Um Maybe he's kicking himself a bit for having retired a couple of years early uh, because at the time when he retired, who knew that 35-year-olds could win slams? Um, but I think he made the right call. Uh, he absolutely, I don't think, would have won a slam uh, even playing uh, you know, at, at his best uh, in his 30s because uh, that's what Andy Roddick was about. He, he wanted to win the big ones. I don't think he was there to hang out as a journeyman and be ranked in the 20s or 30s. But if you ask me, would Andy Roddick be able to replicate an occasional result like Gilles Muller on, on a fast court like Wimbledon? Absolutely. I think he would make the quarters and maybe even beat a guy like Chilich. 
Okay. Hey, a couple of things. First, you said 35-year-olds are winning slam. That's like one ridiculous 35-year-old Roger Federer. Not everybody would be able to do that. So let's throw that example. And Serena Williams on the women's side. Okay. okay, I was just talking the men's tour. And I don't think Roderick would have been looking at the WTA too because he wouldn't be playing on that tour. But yeah, Serena is, you know, Serena. Same as Roger. So, And uh, I think, uh, to me, tennis is more like uh, the miles on the body. Roderick had a pretty injury-free uh, career. And his stay in top 10 was underrepted for like a lot of years. So when he was done, not only was he mentally done, and I think he was also physically declining, having some injuries. So 2012 is when he retired, and he was having a lot of losses when his ranking was probably, I think, he didn't retire as a top 10 player. I think he was close to top 20, if I'm mista- not mistaken. Right. So my thing is all emotions apart. He's a great player. Gilles Miller, on the other hand, had a very journeyman career, and since he teamed up with Miles McLaughlin a few years ago, and now I don't know who's coaching him, his tennis turned for the good. I mean, this guy was struggling after reaching the 2008 quarters. He hasn't reached any career peak. So even a 35-year-old, his body probably has seen less action than Roddick. And Roddick had a lot of top-level action. So my thing for, again, I'm not going to dissect Brooklyn's uh, you know, tweet that much, but I, I think Roddick made the right call. And I disagree that if Roddick, five years from that 2012 uh, U.S. Open, he would be making a Wimbledon quarters. I don't think so. I think he's I mean, the right... Look at the other players on the tour. I mean, let's not do Roger Federer because we know he's a freak. Uh, but look at Feliciano Lopez. Uh, look at some of the other uh, older players. Even Ivo Karlovic, big serve. But Andy Roddick with his serve uh, and, I mean, and his consistency, I, I think he would, have, he would have done well for himself. Even a guy like Ferrer who's declining rapidly this year, he showed something at his age. Um, and I, I think, Adam, the, the point I'm trying to make is Roddick consistently had 60 match seasons at the top. Feliciano Lopez has won like 35 matches three or four times in his career. So it all comes down, I think, to the mileage. When you play your best tennis, some people play like 70 match seasons for 10 years in a row and they're, they're done. And, and my question is, if he had taken time like Roger did, if he had taken six months off, recuperated, come back on tour, do you not think that he would have done, had at least a few of these kinds of results like quarterfinals? He would, but you're missing the point here. He's been gone for five years. I didn't see him. Even if he did, say, took a higher rest and then came back with Larry Stefanke and work on his fitness, reinvented some parts of the game. Still, I didn't see Andy Roddick playing more than two or three years. And, of course, like you said, he wasn't interested to be world number 28. Okay. And then, when, you know, and, and sometimes your bodies are telling you things that, you know, you know. And Tommy Haas is another guy who's probably a lot older, but he's missed a lot of action. So he, in an 18-year career, might have played the similar... Uh, number of matches as Andy Roddick. Yeah, and, uh, when I look at when I look at the men's tour, and I completely agree, he probably cannot hang with the top five, maybe even the top ten. And then you start going down that list, right? And this is why I think guys like Jules Muller and guys like um, Lopez are having great results. Is the rest of the tour is not that great, and they haven't caught up. And Andy Roddick, for me, would if you put him, I mean... But Roddick did not make a Wimbledon quarter after reaching the 2009 final. I mean, even... Yeah, he went a bad touch, but none of these guys did either. I mean, my point is, does he give himself a shot at, at a quarterfinal if the draw opens up in the right way? Absolutely. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's going to be a consistent quarterfinalist. But would he... If you took the five years of Roddick and matched them up against five years of Jules Muller, would you have had five better years of Roddick than Muller? I think, yes, absolutely. Even even for all the miles that he had. You're missing the point. I'm saying Roddick from 2012 to 2017, if he had played. So you think when he couldn't make three quarters back then, you think he would be making a quarterfinals 
five years removed from his last match. Granted, he has been playing. If, if, uh, so, or I will ask you in a different way. From 2012 to 17, do you think Andy Roddick would have had a better average than, say, a guy like Gilles Muller? Yeah, better average, no doubt. But uh, in the, me, in the in, no, no, let, let me finish. Let me finish. Yes, uh, he, Roddick probably won't fancy, you know, or take, his pride would be hurt if he's just relying on, you know, winning certain two fifties in America or going anywhere. If they both played, Roddick probably would be still winning twenty five to thirty matches. But would he be winning five matches or four matches in the biggest show, best of five sets? I don't think so. Yeah, well, this is where we disagree because I, I actually think he this is no disrespect to Andy Roddick. I think. He maxed out like certain players, you know, like he was very emotional at the, the kind of tennis he played. I think he maxed out in those eight, nine years of top flight tennis. He played a lot of tennis deep into tournaments. And that's, that's, I think that's what led to his no, I, I, I actually agree with that. He maxed out, he retired at the right time. My point is, will he make two quarterfinals in the next five years? Absolutely. I think he would. I mean, would he make even three or four? Probably. Gilles um, Muller, I, I mean, as good as he's been. This is the one tournament that favors his game and he, he happened to make the quarters, but he's not the kind of player who I would compare to Andy Roddick and say, look, can Roddick match his result? I think he, on... He, no, no, just one result, not his career. I yeah, mean, and if you let these guys play it out over five years, Roddick would probably beat him eight times out of ten. I mean, let's put it this, Jills Miller is a fraction of Andy Roddick's career at Wimbledon, so there's no way I'm going there, but I'm just saying five years from now, uh, or, or five years from 2012, I think it's kind of, uh, I mean, I've spoken what I need to. Hypothetical. But... So I, I think you and I probably uh, don't see it the same way. But uh, uh, yeah. And as and as uh, the listeners, all of you don't know, but Anand's a big, big Roddick fan. And uh, back in the day, Federer united us and Roddick and Safin divided us like anything. So I, I see Anand holding form and I give him credit. And this and... is the year <laughs> This is the year of Roddick. As you know, Sakit, he's going to be uh, inducted into the uh, Tennis Hall of Fame. Yeah, hopefully we'll be there uh, and uh, get a picture taken with him or something. And then we won't bring this discussion up. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for doing this. And uh, whoever gets to listen to this, it's a packed week with a lot of tennis. So uh, if you listen to the podcast, it's really good. If you don't, you can listen it to, to it later. But once again, uh, yeah, let's do this again. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one.